Shoreshine Podcast, shining a light to the nations. Greetings, everyone. This is Bill, and this is the Torah portion, or our commentary on the Torah portion, Teruma. And I say commentary, or Durash, because it is not to be intended to be an exhaustive exegesis on the portion. It's intended to be my comments, my observations, etc., on certain points in the Torah portion. Of course, the Torah portion, Teruma is in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1, through Exodus 27, verse 19. Of course, in Hebrew, it's Shemot, not Exodus. And just kind of as we began, just a interesting little footnote to the idea of Shemot. Or Rashi refers to Shemot as the book of redemption. And now, for me, that's an interesting concept because it demonstrates that redemption was more than just being released from Egypt. It was more than just going to the mountain. Actually, it was about attaining the spiritual level where God dwells among us. That's what we're going to see in our Torah portion. In other words, he tabernacled among us as eventually, as we see in the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is going to come down and he is going to be in the midst of the city tabernacling amongst us. That's where we're headed to. That's the goal. That's the purpose. And so that's the culmination of redemption. And so Rashi, referring to Shemot as the book of redemption, I find to be very interesting. But even though that's the goal, that's where we're headed, we can't get there without first going through the process. And the process begins with the deliverance from Egypt, being born again, going to the mountain, that is, having his word in our hearts, so that he may dwell among us. And I believe that ultimately, the redemption speaks of that in this manner, seeing him as he is. It hasn't been revealed in us what we will be, but when we see him, we shall be like him. And that's when we're going to be completely redeemed, according to Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 15. So I said all that because this Parsha is dedicated to the preparations of the Mishkan, or the tabernacle. And Mishkan is literally dwelling place. Because the Mishkan is seen as being emblematic of Sinai. God speaks from Sinai. He speaks to Moses from the ark, which is in the Mishkan, and that's the place that he dwells among us. He dwells in our midst. And so then the Mishkan was to keep before them the thought that God was among them. He was tabernacling among them. And so they were to be influenced by that knowledge, provoking them to continually rise to the calling that he had given them, that is, as Israel, to be a light to the nations. Well, you can't be a light to the nations unless you have been purified, you've been made holy, you're walking in conjunction with God's will for you. Now, this idea, this concept of him being in their midst and thus they being provoked to walk according to that calling that was in direct opposition to their prior situation when they were in Egypt. Because when they were in Egypt, they had multiple gods in their midst. And so in a manner of speaking, the tabernacle and that whole experience was to wing them off of Egypt and off of their Egyptian idols. So he is among us, he's in our midst, and he is holy. So then how are we to be? 
according to Leviticus 11.44, because he is holy, that is set apart, we also are to be holy, and that is how we are to live. And so again, the idea of the Mishkan dwelling place is that he dwells in our midst. That's the goal. That's where we want him to be. We want him to be within us. We want that total redemption. We want to be delivered from Egypt. We want to go to the mountain, but we want him to be in our midst. So, now some... Jewish sources argue that the only reason the Mishkan was necessary was because of the golden calf. And I'm not saying that is either for or against, but it's just kind of interesting to consider. Because consequently, this would mean that it's not necessarily in chronological order. That is the scripture. In other words, when we're reading now about the establishment of the tabernacle, in the building of it in Teruma, we don't get to the the golden calf incident until later. But if, as these Jewish scholars argue, the tabernacle was necessary because of the golden calf, that would mean that the book of Exodus is not necessarily written in chronological order. The nation before that event, so says the argument, was to be the tabernacle, the Mishkan, if I can put it that way, worthy of the Shekinah, Shekinah, and literally, Shekinah does not mean glory, as many of us were told growing up. It actually, it means indwelling presence, indwelling. Because the word Mishkan and the word Shekinah come from the same root word, Shekan, and that means to dwell in. So, here's what we're saying. If it had not been for the golden calf, and the golden calf incident was evidence of something that started long before in Egypt, but if it's true that if it hadn't been for the golden calf, it hadn't been for the idolatry within them, that they would have been considered the tabernacle or the mishkan, where the shkinah, the presence of God, could dwell within them. That's interesting because of what Paul says. He says, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so as temples of the Holy Spirit, if you will, the Mishkan, the the dwelling place, that means that he is supposed to dwell within us. And if he is to dwell within us in our midst, then what is that to provoke us to do? To always be reminded to walk according to the calling of those that he wants to dwell in their midst. And so I think that's very, very interesting. And so as we kind of begin this Torah portion, that is going to be the focus, is that this is all about him being in our midst and what that means and what that is to provoke you and me as his people to do. Now, beginning with the Torah reading, and I should say we're not going to read every bit of it. We're just going to highlight some of the things that are in the Torah portion. And so, as I said, the the Torah portion is called Teruma. And this word is found for is for, for us, I should say, in verse 2, which says, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they take for me an offering of every man whose heart makes him willing, shall he take my offering. And the word that is offering, some translations are portion, that is teruma. And teruma is from a root word that means to uplift, can also mean lifted off, something that is separated. And so what it is to do is to indicate that the components of the Mishkan would be constructed of those possessions that Israel had separated off, had portioned off, and had dedicated, if I can put it this way, lifted for a higher purpose. And so that's where the Torah portion gets its word, or excuse me, gets its name, portion or something that is lifted off. Now, these 
portions that everybody dedicated, again, were what is going to comprise the Mishkan, or the sanctuary. And in verse 8, we want to read that. It says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now, the word sanctuary is mikdash, mikdash, and the root of that word is the same word we get holy or kadosh from. But So, it doesn't use mishkan there, it uses mikdash, it uses mishkan later. But anyway, notice this, so that I may dwell among them. And the term there is vishakhanti, vishakhanti, literally, that I may dwell in them which takes us back to our earlier thought, that the purpose of the Mishkan is so that he can dwell within us, in our midst. Again, Paul says we are temp- our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, so that he can dwell within our midst. So, Vishankhati, dwell in them. Again, the root word is Shakan, from which we get Mishkan, the tabernacle, and Shkinah the indwelling presence. And so the purpose then, according to verse 8 of the sanctuary, is so that I may dwell in them. Very important. Now, we're going to read verse 9. He says, According to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furniture thereof, even so shall you make it. And so he showed Moses a pattern when he descended upon Sinai, or Chorib, in fire. He showed him the pattern for the Mishkan. And thus God on Sinai dwelt in a sanctuary. I will say that again. On Sinai, God dwelt in a sanctuary he had made. Chorib, if you will. He's the one who created the mountains. And so he dwells in a sanctuary there that he makes, but gives instructions for a tabernacle in which he would dwell that Israel would make. So in essence, the Mishkan became a traveling Sinai. So wherever it rested, it was the source or the fountain of holiness that Sinai had been in the wilderness. Because later on, what's going to happen? Moses is going to go into the tent of meeting. God's going to appear there. He's going to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And then Moses is going out to tell the children of Israel. Same situation when he's on the top of Sinai. Again, He's in their midst, he's in the Mishkan, in a tabernacle that they made, per his instructions, reminiscent of the tabernacle that he first gave them his instructions in, and that was a tabernacle that he had made. And now, beginning at verse 10 and all the way down to verse 22, it discusses the ark and how the ark was to be constructed and all the particulars about that. Again, we're not going to read all of that, we're going to point some things out for you. First of all, The ark, because it contains the tablets of the law, is the focus of the tabernacle. It's the most important piece of furniture. And if the tabernacle was to be emblematic of Sinai, then the ark containing those instructions is going to be the focus of the Mishkan. His presence would rest and speak from here. So his presence and his word are the focus because the ark is the focus. Now, the word that is translated for us, ark, in Hebrew is aron, and it is thought to be from the word or, or the feminine form, ora, which means light, meaning that the ark and the word that it contains is the light from which Israel derives its strength. In other words, it's the light of the world. So, where does Israel derive its strength? 
from the light of the world. That this is the focus of the tabernacle also demonstrates that that the tabernacle existed in order to house the tablets of the law, or shall we say, the word, not the other way around. The Mishkan was simply the house it resided in. So the tabernacle, the reason for the tabernacle is to house the word. Because without the word, the Mishkan really isn't anything. And so if we are to be temples of the Holy Spirit, what does that tell me? Well, it tells me I got to have the word in me. Because you see, to as many as received him, that is the Messiah, who is the word, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. But not only that, I want you to also consider this, that in regards to Yeshua himself, he tabernacled among us. And who is he? He is the word made flesh. So I find that all very interesting. This whole idea that the focus of the tabernacle exists in order to house the word and the presence and not the other way around reminds me of an exchange in the New Testament or the Brit Chadashah when the gold of the temple was apparently by some considered more sacred than the temple itself or some apparently considered the gift more important than the altar, etc. And here's what Yeshua says to that in Matthew 23, verse 21. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Which is to say, the one who dwells in it is the one who sanctifies the temple and everything that is associated with it. So, the temple, or the tabernacle in this case, isn't sanctified just because it's the tabernacle. It's sanctified because of the one, big O, who dwells in it. The one who sanctifies it by his presence and by his word. So considering that the ark is the first piece of furniture mentioned, and it's going to be in the very first piece of furniture that's actually placed in the Mishkan. So what that tells me then is, everything must begin in the heart. The Holy of Holies, where the ark is going to be housed, is the focus, or let's use this word, the heart of the house. And from the ark, we're going to see the table described, we're going to see the menorah described, we're going to see the coverings, the bars, all those things, and then we're going to see the brazen altar mentioned, and that's the way those things were set up. And so what we're getting at is this, what begins in the heart, if you will, the holy of holies, where the ark is, where the word is, where the presence is, what begins in the heart must resonate outwardly. Psalm 119, verse 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, the word within the ark was hidden eventually by a veil that was embroidered with cherovim, who were guardians, by the way. It was hidden. It was concealed. It was in the heart. By the way, what is sin, according to 1 John 3, 4? Transgression of the law. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not transgress your law, that I might not sin against you. And from the Holy of Holies, from the heart, it moves to the holy place where the table was, where the bread of the face was, or the showbread as some people say. That's where the the bread was. That's where the menorah was. Now my opinion is that bread symbolizes the word as well, but the eating of it, the internalizing it, and the menorah is the illumination to help us to understand it. 
So you have the devouring of the word, eating what's hidden, but the, the menorah, the illumination, the light, helps us to understand that. Now, Psalm 1, verse 2 says this, speaking of the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. In other words, what he has hidden in his heart, now he is internalizing it, he's ingesting it, and he is meditating upon it. And as he meditates upon it, he is given understanding of it, he's given illumination, and then those things that he meditates upon and begins to understand, he is eventually going to manifest outwardly, that is, to walk these things out in his strength, which corresponds to the altar, those things that are in the courtyard. See, it begins in the heart, the Holy of Holies. It goes to the mind, the holy place, that's the consciousness and then it is expressed in our actions pertaining to the court. And that is why I believe the great command is this, according to Matthew 22, verse 37 and 8. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and great command. You, you love him with all of your heart. It starts there. You love him with all your soul, your mind. It, it permeates your consciousness, and then you express it through your strength. That is your hands, your feet, where they go, where they don't go, what you set your hand to do, what you don't do, what you eat, what you don't eat, what holidays you keep, what which ones you don't, etc. It begins in the heart, it goes to the consciousness, the mind, and then it expresses itself in our bodies, in our strength. Again, Ark of the Covenant's in the Holy of Holies. That's where the Word is. That's where the presence is. It has to begin there. That was the first piece of furniture mentioned, first piece of furniture set. Then it goes outwardly to the holy place and then eventually to the courtyard. So it's the heart first, then the mind, then the strength, not the other way around. Now, if God who rests between the cherubim is in the heart, if his word is in the heart, that is what sanctifies those things that are done outwardly in the court or our strength, not the other way around. In other words, if we keep the commandments of God and follow the Torah, which is represented, let's say, by the offering upon the brazen altar, but he's not in the heart, he's not in the Holy of Holies, his presence is not there, his word isn't there, then what good is the sacrifice upon the altar? Because you see, it is he who dwells in the temple that sanctifies the temple. You see, the ark was overlaid within and without with gold. It didn't have two distinct looks. It didn't have one for the outside and one for the inside. And so what that tells us, it's symbolizing that what is on the inside must also be on the outside. And what is on the outside is to reflect what is on the inside. If you appear pure on the outside and you're not pure of heart and mind, what are you? You're a hypocrite. And to do that, to have one thing on the inside and one thing on the outside, not only is it hypocritical, but especially when you consider those who are regarded as leaders, if that's the situation, if they're not the same on the outside as they are on the inside. Well, first of all, that's a very dangerous situation for them. But the point is, the Ark of the Covenant is demonstrating to us that what's on the outside 
should also be what's on the inside. We should not be a pig's foot, in other words. And what we mean by that, it's an expression in Judaism that when you see a pig lying on its side, outwardly, a pig appears to meet the qualifications of being clean because it has a cloven hoof. But when you inspect inwardly, because the pig does not chew its cud, then it's disqualified from being clean. Again, what this is teaching is that what appears on the outside must be a reflection of what is on the inside. That is why God wants truth to be in the inward parts, according to Psalm 51. Consider also now that the ark was essentially God's throne on earth, and so then his word must be in us if he truly is Lord of our life. If he is in our heart, if he's enthroned upon our heart, because the Ark Ark of the Covenant is essentially his throne, it's interesting, and this is fascinating, to consider that the heart is flanked on either side by organs that house the breath, or if I can put it this way, the presence. That is, of course, I'm talking about the lungs. And what's even more fascinating about that, at least to me, is that in Hebrew, the word for lung is reah. And reah is also the word for to look, to see, to understand. And so if you consider that the breath is synonymous with spirit in Hebrew, ruach, we understand that it is the Spirit of God that searches, yes, the deep things of God, according to 1 Corinthians 2, which is to say, it is the Spirit of God who helps us to see and understand what is written in the Word of God. And so the Word of God must be in our hearts, and if it's in our hearts, then He's going to help us to see and to understand. Also, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and that there are two rea lungs, Flanking the heart, that is the throne, God's throne in our lives. It's interesting that there are two of these that see and understand, Rea. What that suggests, at least to me, is that there are two perceptions. There's two points of view in seeing what his word is telling us. And those two must come together as one with him in the midst. The two witnesses, if you will. And so, according to, in our Torah portion, verse 16, let's read this. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. That is saying, the tablets that were placed within the ark, in Hebrew they are called ha'edut. And haidut literally means witnesses. And so it's interesting that there are two witnesses that are stored in the Aron. It's symbolizing the commands given, given to us upon the mountain called Sinai, also known as Chorib. So what he gave to us from Chorib, these two tablets of stone, are called two witnesses. And so they're placed in the ark, which is God's throne. And if we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that he's supposed to be in our heart. And they're flanked on, it's flanked on either side by these two rea, these, if I can put it this way, witnesses, these two points of seeing. And of course, all this gets into the fact that there are two witnesses. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> but anyway, I find it's very, very interesting. There are two witnesses that are stored inside the, the Aron. 
And so it's very interesting that we also have two anointed ones that stand beside the Lord of the whole earth, according to Zechariah 4, verse 14. That's in a vision that the prophet had. And it was a vision concerning the golden menorah and two olive branches on its side. And according to Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, those two olive branches are called two witnesses. So what I'm trying to do is show how that and all these things, they're all interconnected. Now, in verses 17 through 20, it describes for us the cover of the ark, the kaporet, and the cherovim. Now, the Chaporet is often called the mercy seat. The Holy of Holies is literally called, in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 11, the house of the Chaporet. And, of course, the word Chaporet comes from the same root word we get Kippur, as in Yom Kippur. And so, what we have here is a word, Chaporet, that conveys to us not only a covering, but atonement. Because the chaporet, or the cover on the ark, is going to figure prominently in the Day of Atonement. Now, coming from the chaporet were the two golden cherovim. The cherovim. Now, they are coming from the chaporet. They were not made and then attached to the chaporet. They actually come from the chaporet itself. And they face the ark cover to guard the presence and if you will, the testimony, the two tablets. God speaks from their midst. So tradition now has it that one had the face of a male and one a female, but were part of the same cover. Again, they were not made and then attached to it, but they were made from the same piece of gold that was the cover, the chaporet. Supposedly, anyway, they are two, one male, one female. They come from the chaporet. This interests me because of the fact that mankind was male and female, but intended to be one flesh. And where did this all start? She came from him, but where did he come from? According to Luke 3, Adam, the first man, was called the Son of God. He was in Genesis 5. When he was created, it was in the image and likeness of God. And so what I'm getting at is this. Two witnesses, if I may put it that way. But they're coming together as one. And when they do, God would speak from between the cherovim. These two witnesses would hear and they would guard the holiness of his presence as well. In other words, let's go back to the idea of the heart. If God is in, if he speaks from the heart of the sanctuary, where the Ark of the Covenant is, and if we are temples of the Holy Spirit, then that's where he's going to be. And it's going to be flanked on either side by the lung, the reah, those things that see, those things that perceive, these witnesses, if I can put it that way, corresponding to the cherovim that flanked the, the presence there on the top of the cover. And so these two witnesses are going to hear what the Creator says. They're going to perceive what the Creator says. They are going to guard what the Creator says. They are going to be faithful to guard the testimony and the witness of what He is speaking. He speaks from their midst. And they came from Him. If He is represented by the Ark, if the Kaporet, that's the original, and these two Kerovim come from that, 
It, all of this is just speaking, at least to me, of these two witnesses that we're going to read about at the end of days. What is their responsibility? What are they going to be doing? The perspectives they're coming from. You know, one's in Ephesians 2, for instance, is regarded as circumcision. One's uncircumcision, etc., etc. We don't have time to get all the details of this. Again, because we're supposed to be just commenting on the Torah portion. But at any rate, these two witnesses come together as one, and thus when God speaks from between the Cherubim, these Cherubim, these witnesses will hear, and they're going to guard the holiness of his presence, what he's saying, the testimony, etc. Now, I say guard because the first mention of the Cherubim is in Genesis 3, when they were posted to guard the way to the tree of life, which is representative of the word. And the reason they were placed there to guard the way to the tree of life is because Adam failed to do that. He was instructed to work and to guard, but he didn't. He failed, and so they had to. Now, they do this on the ark as well. They guard, indicating that these two witnesses are guardians of what has been entrusted to them. You see, God speaks through the mouth of two or more witnesses. Everything has to be confirmed through the mouth of two or more witnesses. That is, everything's established. Again, all of this, ladies and gentlemen, the typology and all of the emblems that are being represented here, it brings to my mind the events of Matthew 17, the two witnesses that are on the mountain with Yeshua, who is the Word, Moses and Elijah, of course, the circumcision, uncircumcision, all of that. We've got all of these details that we simply don't have time to go into here on our DVD, Days of Darkness. We have an audio called Under One Flesh, one that's called That the Two May Be One. All these teachings offer this in greater detail. You can obtain that on our blog here. At any rate, all of this brings to mind, at least to me, the fact that this theme with these two witnesses goes all the way back to the beginning, and it's again represented in the tabernacle, in the ark, the cherubim, the two witnesses, the tables of the testimony. All of these things speak of two witnesses again and again and again and again. Now, if you look at the word cherubim, or keruv, which would be the singular form of it, the root of this word really means to cover, as if concealing something, and again, guarding something. Now, the root kerev, or kerav, is related phonetically to another word, karav. In Hebrew, the root word kerav, from which we get the kerovim, or the cherubim, is spelled kaf resh vav. But it's related phonetically to another word pronounced karav, which is spelled kuf resh vav. And this is interesting because karav, spelled with the kuf, means to come close, to draw near, to approach, and to encounter. And this word is the basis of the term korban. And of course, korban is that sacrificial gift that's going to be placed upon an altar. In fact, the root word means to offer a sacrifice, or it's related to the word hakrev that means to offer a sacrifice. And so the point is this. This word karab with the kuf denotes someone having an intimate relationship with someone and phonetically it's related to karav which is spelled with the kaf 
which is the root of the cherovim. And so, again, denoting someone having an, an intimate relationship with someone. And so the cherovim, they're on the ark, on the chaporet. We could say they have an intimate relationship, if I can use that word, with the chaporet, which is the cover of the ark, God's throne on earth. So now, it's interesting to consider that the nearer an object was to the most holy place, in other words, the cherubim, the cherubim, the closer an object was to the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, the rarer and the costlier of the material would be. In other words, when you consider earth is used, that's mentioned in our Torah portion, woven cloths, brass, brass gold, etc., the closer you get to the most holy place where the Creator is, where His presence is, the more costly, the more rare the material was. And so what that infers to me is that vessels of honor are those who draw near to korban or karav, those who draw near to and who have an intimate relationship with the Creator, also related to the idea of the cherovim. Now, the korban, as I mentioned, was a gift that was consumed in fire. And so if we are going to draw near, to approach, to be close to, have an intimate relationship with, to be like the cherovim on the chaporet. That means that we have to be the kind of purest gold. And how is that purest gold attained? It's refined in the fire. The korban has to be consumed in the fire. So, in other words, ladies and gentlemen, those who want to be vessels of honor, those who want to draw near to him, are going to be required to die to their flesh, because our God is a consuming fire. They are going to be those who regard his holiness. They keep their eyes upon him as the cherovim looked to the kaporet, and they are going to protect the testimony the tablets of the law, the tree of life. They are permitted to draw near to his throne because they are dying to themselves. And that, those vessels of honor, again, are those that are drawing near to him, those who want to be close with him, that have had to go through the fire, so to speak. In that, I am reminded of Esther, but also those who are called the remnant of the woman's seed in Revelation chapter twelve seventeen, because they keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. So again, all of this is to say that the closer you get to the most holy place, the more intimate the relationship becomes, and that means to be a vessel of honor means you're going to have to die to self, die to you, and you're going to have to be refined by the fire. Now, the cherubim or the cherubim are symbolizing God's nearness to mankind. Psalm speaks of God being enthroned upon the cherovim. That's in Psalm 80, verse 1. The word enthroned is yoshav, which literally means to sit, but in this context, it's enthroned. And so he's enthroned upon the cherovim. And, of course, the cherovim are represented by what we just mentioned. And so we see that in Psalm 22, verse 3, that he inhabits the praises of Israel. And what's interesting about that, it's inhabits is the same word, yoshav. 
that we just mentioned when it means enthroned. And so what it's literally saying in Psalm 22 verse 3 is that he is enthroned upon the praises of Israel. That is his people. Well, if he's enthroned upon the praises of his people, then he is, and he's also enthroned upon the cherubim, what is it telling us? The ark is emblematic of his throne. And his throne is in the heart of the tabernacle. And if the tabernacle is all about him dwelling in our midst, then what he's really saying here is that he wants to be enthroned upon our heart. He wants us to draw close to him that he may draw close to us. And so all of this is to say, ladies and gentlemen, once again, that if we're going to draw close to him, then we're going to have to die to us. If we want that kind of a relationship then we're going to have to be willing to die to what we want and embrace what he wants. And that's what he wants so that he can be in our midst. Now, both of these words, karav with the chaf and karav with the kuf, are in turn phonetically related to the word charav with a chet. And charav with a chet means to dry up, to be desolate, barren, or dry. And from this root word, we get Choreb or Horeb, which is synonymous with Sinai. And of course, Sinai was in a dry place, thus the connection to this verb. Now, here's my point. Through these related words, I believe that we see the two witnesses in the ark are related in some ways to the two witnesses or the two guardians on the cover. And that is emblematic of those who draw near to him and who die to their flesh. All of that is to bring us back to the role of Choreb from Charav in the overall scheme of what we're talking about here. In other words, to die to one's flesh is to submit to God's instructions, according to Romans 8, verse 7. And those instructions were given at Choreb, at Sinai. And so the words inscribed upon the two tablets that were stored Inside the ark, under the chaperet, guarded by the cherubim, were taken from the rock at Choreb. Now, it's also interesting to consider that this same root word, dry, barren, desolate, etc., gives us the word cherev, and cherev is the word for sword. And so that the word, the word of God, is a sword, there can be no doubt. In fact, the, the word is a sharp, two-edged sword. Two tablets, two cherub, the cherubim, if you will, two witnesses, a two-edged sword. And when the Messiah returns, a sword is going to go forth from his mouth, according to Revelation 19.15. But here's a little footnote. I know that many of you are familiar with Jim and Penny Caldwell, and these are the people who lived in Saudi Arabia for a number of years, took video and pictures of what they believed to be the authentic Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. Well, at any rate, in their description of it, and I've seen the pictures of this, there are actually two peaks. And what they believe is, and I'm kind of leaning in this direction myself, is that these two peaks that make up this one mountain is why we see in the scripture so many times that sometimes God refers to Sinai, and sometimes the Bible refers to Choreb. In other words, suggesting that there was one of the peaks is Sinai, and one of the peaks is Choreb. But they get used interchangeably, and you think it's just one mountain, and in reality it is, but that one mountain has two peaks. 
Interestingly, and this is again according to the Caldwells, between the two peaks is an ancient cedar tree whose main branches numbered to be seven. Seven branches of this cedar tree that really stands out in the middle of the desert. There's nothing else around it. They have the theory, and I find this very interesting. Their theory is that this may have been the bush that Moses saw that God spoke to him from. And if so, that he was speaking to to Moses from between these two peaks, Sinai and Chorev, or Chorev, again related to Harav, Cherovim, Cherubim. Again, that is going to connect us to what happens in Matthew 17 when Yeshua takes Peter, James, and John up to a high, unnamed mountain. And there Moses and Elijah are speaking to him. And by the way, what is the mountain that Moses and Elijah have in common? Sinai. It also reminds us of Zechariah 5, the menorah, the seven-branch lampstand, flanked on either side by two olive branches. All this, ladies and gentlemen, if we take all of this into consideration... It seems to me that there is a pattern be established for us, and that the cheruvim, the ones who are guarding the presence, are emblematic of two witnesses, the two becoming one, so to speak. They are their eyes are fixed on the presence. They are guarding the testimony. God speaks from their midst. Two, everything is established by these two or more witnesses. That is related to the idea of drawing near to him to be a vessel of honor, to dying to self, to being purified in the fire, etc., which is also related to Chorev and Cherev, which is a sword. And the Chorev, of course, gives us the word, which is the two-edged sword that divides asunder soul and spirit, bone and marrow, etc. And perhaps God was even speaking originally to Moses from between these two peaks, from the, if I can put it this way, these two witnesses, Matthew 17, Zechariah 5, all of this seems to tile together. Now, taking all of this into consideration, and that's a lot to take into consideration, we want to read verse 22. It says, And, I, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the ark cover, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give you in commandment unto the children of Israel. So again, we're taking all this into consideration, and here in this verse he says, I will meet with you. Thus, the tabernacle is often referred to as the tent of meeting. In fact, that term, tent of meeting, in Hebrew is ohel moed, tent of appointment or tent of meeting. You should be familiar with the term moed as in moedim as in the Moedim, the appointed times. Well, that's the same concept here in the tent of meeting. He says, I will meet with you. And so where does he meet with us? Between the Cherovim, between the two witnesses. And he speaks from their midst. And when you hear him speaking from the midst of the two witnesses, then what are you to do? You are to go out and to share this with the rest of the children of Israel. And for those of you who are understanding of the whole concept that there's circumcision and uncircumcision and these two are coming together as one, then that ought to really say a whole lot. Now, beginning at verse 23 through verse 30, the Torah portion begins to describe to us the table of showbread, which is, again, the bread of the face. There were 12 loaves that were baked, and those 12 loaves corresponded to the 12 tribes of Israel. They were 
stacked in two columns of six, and they were baked fresh and renewed every Shabbat. And then after the old ones were removed on Shabbat, the priest would eat from those loaves that were taken from the table. And that they didn't mold, to me anyway, is interesting enough. But what do they represent? And I'm asking that question because Maimonides, he wrote that, and I guess I should say who Maimonides is, for those of you who are not aware, he was a very famous sage. He is often called the Rambam. But anyway, in relation to the the table of Shobred, he says this, I do not know the object of the table with the bread upon it continually, and up to this day I have not been able to assign any reason to this commandment. Now, other than 12 tribes of Israel, and that the bread is emblematic of the word, it is open for discussion as to what all this is to say. But one thing I do want to mention here is the fact that this table, there is a crown that is mentioned in relation to this table. By the way, there's also a crown mentioned in relation to the ark. Later on, there's going to be another crown mentioned regarding the altar of incense. Now, the Hebrew word in each case, crown, is zer, zer, and it's spelled zayn resh. Now, read in reverse, this word zer is resh zayn, mystery, raz, which means a mystery. And so, rabbinically, it is taught that there is a mystery about these three crowns, and that is believed to be this. Number one, the ark, the crown concerning the ark, is the crown of Torah, because the word was stored in the ark. As far as the table, the 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes, the crown there is said to be the crown of the kingdom because the kingdom is comprised of the 12 tribes. And that's why the two witnesses coming together as one and restoring the whole house of Israel is very crucial. Then we don't read about it in this Torah portion, but there is the golden altar of incense. There's a crown that is associated with that. That crown is said to be the crown of the priesthood. So, the Word, the Torah, the Kingdom, the Twelve Tribes, and the Priesthood. Now, there's going to be another crown mentioned as well later on in Exodus chapter 39, verse 30, and that is the crown of the High Priest. And the reason we bring that out is because that crown has a slightly different spelling. In fact, it's spelled Nun Zain Reish, and that's pronounced Nezer, Nezer. Now, the word Nezer is related to Nazarite, which is not to be confused with Nazri or Nazareth or Nazarene. Different word. But it is related to Nazarite or the vows of a Nazir. Now, this crown is the crown of the high priest, and it is the one to adorn the one who is set apart from those already set apart. In other words, you have the holy place, but then you have the most holy place. And so you have the priest, but then you have the high priest. And so the nezer is the crown that separates the one from those who are already set apart. And so I believe that this is the crown, speaking of the great high priest, of course, Yeshua the Messiah, who is the head. And so the reason we're bringing this out is all of this, ladies and gentlemen, this whole concept of him tabernacling in our midst, the two witnesses coming together is one. Who is going to be the one to accomplish all this? Who is the focus of it all? Who is the one who became the Word? 
and became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us, it's Yeshua. It's the great high priest. And so all focus and all emphasis should be placed upon him. Now in verse 31 through 40, the Torah portion describes for us the menorah. And the word menorah, it's mem, nun, vav, resh, he. The word menorah comes from the word ner or lamp. And so the first thing I want you to notice is that this lamp, this menorah, had to be made complete with all the branches, the bowls, the knobs, the flowers, the lamps, all those things from the same ingot of gold. An unbelievable feat. In fact, that's why Bezalel and Aholiav had to be given supernatural wisdom in order to accomplish this. Now, in verse 32, let's read that actually. And there shall be six branches going out of the sides thereof, three branches of the candlestick out of the one side thereof, and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side thereof. And the it's talking about three branches coming out of the menorah on one side, three branches coming out of the menorah on the other side. I bring that out for this reason. The menorah seems to be the main central branch, and the other six branches come out of it, three branches on each side. And so that would suggest that the menorah the one in the midst is the same one regarded to be the Ner Tamid, the eternal light, which is also regarded as the Shmash, that is the servant lamp. And that seems to be, according to what we read in Revelation at the testimony of John, this is where Yeshua was standing when he was speaking to John from the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So in other words... The menorah itself is the central main branch. And then you have the other branches coming out of it. And this menorah of the central branch is the eternal light. It's the servant light. And this just happens to be where Yeshua was standing when he speaks to John on the Isle of Patmos. Now, the word branches, as it's used here to describe those that come out three on each side, the word is kanim, and the root word kana suggests a reed, a shoot, or a branch. In other words, it denotes the idea of branches growing out of the main tree. And those branches are going to put forth fruit. Notice that the branches have the almond blossom-like cups and the flowers on each branch. And so this idea here is of a tree. Now, kana, the root, most literally means to acquire by purchase, and in some cases is even translated redeem by purchase. And so the idea of acquiring suggests that these branches or these shoots that come out of the main tree, they are going to produce the fruit. They're going to be the sent out ones, the apostles that produce the fruit to help acquire what are they going to acquire? They're going to acquire those people that are supposed to come into the kingdom. And so the branches come out of the main tree. They put forth their fruit because inside the fruit, of course, is the seed. And what is the seed? It's the word. Now, interestingly, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, the prophet sees a rod of an almond tree. And if you read that, you see that the rod of the almond tree is synonymous with, I'm quoting, my word. 
And so the menorah then represents a tree that is synonymous with the word, or if I can put it this way, the tree of life that produces a fruit that if you eat it, you live. The menorah also produces illumination, that is insight. It casts its light upon the bread that's over there on the table of shobread. That's interesting. And it's also interesting to consider that the fuel for that light, the menorah, is the purest olive oil, and it's extracted from olives that have been crushed in the press. And so ultimately, I believe that menorah speaks of the Messiah, but it also speaks in a way of us. Number one, olives pressed to produce the oil which produces the light. He's the light of the world, and yet he calls upon us to be the light of the world. He was crushed in Gatshmani, or Gethsemane, the place of the olive press. And so, too, we must die to our flesh and be crushed in order that he might shine through us. It's going back to the the concept of the vessels of honor. As you approach the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is, as you get to that, the components become more rare and more costly. They are gold of the finest, purest gold. That is refined in the fire because they are going to be in this close intimate relationship with the creator and so back to the menorah the oil is the fuel for that light that is going to shine and the oil comes about because the fruit that grew on the branches of the tree had to be taken and to be crushed now traditionally the six outer lamps had wicks that were arranged in such a way that they would cause the flames of those lamps to burn inward that is to point toward the central branch. So the ones on the right, the three branches on the right, would be pointing back toward the center, and the ones on the left would be pointing back toward the center. Kind of reminds you of the two cherubim on top of the chaporet, and they faced one another, but their eyes are not on each other, but on the chaporet, where the presence is. Another thing to notice is the bowls or the cups, that there are three on each of the six branches, and four on the main branch. And if you multiply 6 times 3, that's 18. Add 4 to it, that's 22. 22 of these cups or bowls. Legend has it that these bowls, these 22, were inscribed with the 22 letters of the Hebrew Aleph Bet. And so if that's so, reading from right to left, Aleph Bet Gimel, first branch, Dalet He Vav, second branch, Zayn Chetet, third branch. Now we get to the middle branch. Yud Chaf Lamed Mem. Now again, the middle branch is where we believe that Yeshua was standing. And so when he was speaking to John of the Alapatmus, and so when we get to that middle branch, it has Yud Chaf Lamed Mem. And if you take these four letters, the word that is rendered from that is Yichalem. Yichalem, he will make them whole, he will make them complete. Literally, it's all, but the idea here is that the middle branch is going to make them one. He's going to take the two, and he's going to make them one. You've got branches on the right that are, their lights are pointing back toward the middle branch. You've got branches that produce light on the left but are pointing back toward the central branch, which is the menorah itself. Again, where Yeshua is standing when he speaks to John. And so it's the one in the middle 
Yichalem, who makes them literally complete all whole. Now, again, there's a lot more to this that we couldn't get into this recording. If you're very interested in this, we have a DVD called Days of Darkness. It gets into all kinds of details. But I wanted to bring that out because that's a very interesting and very interesting part of this overall teaching. Now, as we kind of continue, when we get to verse, or excuse me, when we get to chapter 26, verse 1, it starts talking and describing for us the the coverings and the walls and all sorts of that. But we want to read to you from verse 1. It says, Moreover shall you make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet with cherubim, the work of the skillful workmen, shall you make them. So notice that the cherubim, the same types of creatures, if we can use that word, that were on the chaparet are also woven into the materials that are the coverings. In verse 6, it says, And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to another with the clasps that the tabernacle may be one. And actually what that says is that the tabernacle may be echad. And if you know any Hebrew words, I guarantee you that you've heard that one, echad. Shema Yisrael Adonai Lahinu Adonai Echad. So the whole idea of Echad is becoming one. You have these many parts, but those many parts are now becoming one. They have to be joined together. So I hope you're seeing a, a, a theme developing here. Well, many themes, but one of those is that all these many or two coming together and being one. And that's all conveyed to us through the idea of the tabernacle. And so you have these different coverings that are fit together as one and they cover all that's going on inside. If the two cherovim are representing two becoming one because they come from the chaparet, what do they do? They cover what's on the inside, the tablets of the testimony. Well, likewise, the coverings, which by the way, are embroidered with the cherovim, they all come together as one and cover everything that's going on inside, symbolizing that every unique component inside the tabernacle is functioning in its unique purpose. And yet, together with the curtains, it constitutes a whole, unified, echad tabernacle. And so on one level, we see that Israel, with all the different tribes, must become one, echad. And when they become one, there's going to be peace, there's going to be solidarity. But these coverings also housed the ark and the presence. And without that, that is his presence. These coverings mean very little. And so you can have all the tribes of Israel and they can come together, but if the presence isn't there, what do you have? Now in the Haftarah, which is 1 Kings Chapter 5, verses 26 through chapter 6, verse 13. The temple was built without the sound of hammer, axe, or iron tool, symbolizing that the temple of God cannot be where there is discord, violence, and revolt. And so, my point was that for the tabernacle and what it embodies and what it represents, for us to come together as one, that means there's peace, there's solidarity, there's echad. And if that's the case, 
his presence is there, that means it has to be devoid of all the bickering, fighting, contention, and all these different things that tend to go on among his people. Because again, if there's going, if they're going to be one, and if the temple, his house, was built without the sound of hammering and axes and iron tools and all these things that represent violence and discord, then we can't build his house. The two can't come together as one until there is shalom, until there is echad. Now, this theme also tells me that it's not beyond the Creator's capacity to be our Father and at the same time to be the Word being flesh and at the same time be everywhere by His Spirit. In other words, He can be our Father and He can be manifest in the Son and His Spirit can be everywhere in the universe all at the same time. And thus, the one who tabernacled among us prayed that we would be one as he and the Father were one, and that we would be one in the Father and the Son, according to John 17, verse 11, 21, 22. Now, the description of the architecture, that is the bars, the boards, the rings, all these things, etc., it makes it clear that the tabernacle was to be constructed in such a way that it would not be shaken by wind or any other means, but it would continue to be stable in any circumstance. And considering that this was the place that the creator of the universe was to abide and to meet with his people, it would seem then, if he wanted to, he could have sustained it supernaturally, he could have upheld it by miraculous means. Instead, the creator of the universe instructs his people to use temporal means, coupled with the wisdom that he's given them, to build it so that it would be sound architecturally. And so like Noah building the ark, he instructs us what to do, and we should do it. So he expects us to do what is within our means, and that is, all, of course, understanding within the guidelines that he has set, in order that the forces without may be withstood. And when we've done what we're supposed to do, then he does his part. Now, from there, the Torah portion goes on to, to describe to us the veil or the partition. This is in verses 31 through 33. And the word that is translated veil or partition is parochet. And parochet is to separate or to shut off something. In fact, it's tied to the idea of something very severely shut off. And of course, that's indicating to us that when the parochet was set up, that no one, with the exception of the high priest, was to go beyond it. It separated the holy place from the most holy place. It's like the nezer, the crown of the high priest, is distinguished from the zer of the altar of incense, the zer of the table of showbread, and frankly, even the zer of the ark. But now, this parochet separates the holy place from the most holy place. And in so doing, what happens is this. The most holy place, when we read the dimensions, we see that it was a perfect cube. It was 10 cubits in height, 10 cubits in length, and 10 cubits in breadth. It was a perfect cube. Now, I want you to, if you can, imagine a cube, three-dimensionally. Not a square, but a cube. In fact, if you need to, draw it on a piece of paper so that you can see what I'm about to tell you. If you draw that three-dimensional cube on a piece of paper, here's what you're going to see. There are eight 
points of intersection or eight vertices. And there are 12 lines that form or meet at these eight points of intersection. And those 12 lines and eight points of vertices form six planes. And when you take these digits, eight, 12, and six, you total them, it comes to 26. And 26, interestingly enough, is the value of the name yud Hey vav Hey, a perfect cube that was the most holy place in which the presence of the Most High God would reside. Now, of course, we understand that in the book of Revelation, the New Jerusalem is a 1,500 square mile cube, and it's from that cube that the word of the Lord will emanate throughout the whole world. I just found that to be interesting. Now, in the Haftar, the Holy of Holies is referred to as Dabir. That's in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 5. Dabir is spelled Dalit Beit Yud Resh. Dabir. And this word comes from the root word Devar. And Devar means word. In other words, the most holy place is referred to as the word if I can put it that way, because that's where the ark was. And inside the ark was, were the tablets of the testimony, the word, the tree of life. And when the new Jerusalem comes down, what's going to be in the midst of it? The tree of life. And the word is hidden in the heart because that's the heart of the sanctuary. Now, once again, I want you to notice that cherubim are present in the parochet the cherubim are woven into the curtain, indicating the, the task of guarding the Most Holy Presence. Now, many people believe that this is the veil that was torn at Yeshua's crucifixion, and it may be. And if it is, there's a lot of symbolism there. That is, the tree of life had been guarded by the cherubim in Genesis 3 because Adam failed to. But when Yeshua, who is the second Adam, reconciles mankind back to God, the veil is rent to from top to bottom. And now we have access back to the Creator and to the tree of life. Now, the parochet is comprised of weavings. The colors are turquoise or blue, purple, and scarlet or red or crimson. So, purple, blue, and red, or blue, purple, and red. Why? Is it possible that what we just mentioned in relation to Yeshua being the second Adam and causing the veil to be torn from top to bottom by his crucifixion, is it possible that offers a clue as to why it's blue, purple, and scarlet? Because blue is to denote the heavens where God dwells. Red, because it's Adam, Edom, it denotes man. But if you fuse these two together, as the instructions say to do, as you fuse these two together, that is red and blue, the result is purple. Now in purple, the red is distinct, as is the blue, and yet they both formulate something unique, purple. In other words, the Messiah, the Word made flesh, he is the Word he is the creator, and yet he tabernacles among us and takes on the veneer of flesh. And he doesn't lose the fact that he is the word, nor does it take away from the fact that he took on the form of man. But in so doing, he became something that's very unique. 
Now, in verse 36, there is also a screen, some translations say veil, but it's different from the one that separates the holy place from the most holy place. This word is masach, and that word means to blend together. And this was at the entrance of the holy place. Now, it's also made from the same colors, that is blue, red, purple, but there are no cherubim embroidered upon it. And so is it possible that this is the veil torn, or was this one open at Yeshua's death? I'm not answering either way because I wasn't there. It's just something interesting to consider. And then finally we come to the altar, which of course was in the courtyard. And again, what we did, we started in the heart, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place, and we worked to the holy place, and we now we come to the outside. And now that we're on the outside, that should not mean that what was to occur on the outside was less important. It just means that what was on the outside was supposed to reflect what was on the inside. And what was on the inside was supposed to resonate and manifest on the outside. Our strength, what we manifest in our flesh, if I can put it that way, doing what God said, literally, temporally, is supposed to be a reflection of the fact that his word is in our heart. Now, it's interesting that the altar was a hollow box filled with earth. The command concerning the altar in Exodus 20, verse 24, describes an altar of earth. And so what that is understood to mean is this, that a mound of earth equal to the altar's dimensions was heaped up, and then the altar was set over it. Again, symbolizing that what is on the outside, the earth, the flesh, what's seen outwardly by people, is to reflect what was on the inside. Yeshua says something about this in Matthew 23 when he talks about you tithe, mint, cumin, anise, and these things, but you should have done these things and not left the weightier matters of the Torah. You should not have omitted those. In other words, he was saying tithe, mint, cumin, anise, but don't omit the weightier matters either, which is mercy, justice, and faith. Do those things and do the outward things. But the outward things, if they don't have the inward things, aren't worth anything. He also talks about the fact that we should cling the inside of the cup first, then the outside. Not the other way around. But he doesn't negate the fact that the outside should be clean as well. And so there were, there were instructions pertaining to the altar that was in the courtyard. There was protocol where that was concerned, just as there was protocol by what was going on on the inside. It had to be a complete thing. It had to be a whole. What was on the inside needed to be reflected on the outside. And what was going on the outside was predicated upon what was going on the inside. And if, again, we are tabernacles... And that is the focus of this Torah portion, the tabernacle. If we are tabernacles, then what's on the inside must be evident on the outside. And what's on the outside must be predicated upon what's on the inside. And if either one of those are out of kilter and out of balance, then how long can we expect that his presence, the Shekinah, to dwell within us? The altar, and this is the point, is not something to be considered unimportant. In fact, the rabbis explain the importance of the altar in this manner. When you take the word for altar, mizbeach, it forms an acrostic for four words. The first one is mechila, 
and mechila is forgiveness. The second word formed from this acrostic mizbiak or altar is zachot, and zachot is merits. The third word is baracha, blessing, and then last but not least, chaim, and chaim is life. And so, when we come to the altar, when we die to ourselves, what started on the inside has resonated to the outside. And we are willing to die and take hold of the altar and what that represents. The result is not death, because everybody associates the altar and the tabernacle at large with death, because what was going to be consumed on the altar? Well, carcasses, animals dying, being slaughtered. And a lot of people associate death with the tabernacle. But contrary to those views, the tabernacle was not about death, but life. The, where the tabernacle is concerned, the only death that takes place is the death of our carnal nature. But if our carnal nature doesn't die, then there can't be life. Because the only life is that which comes by drawing closer to him. To die to ourselves at the altar, if I can put it that way, but move past that and move into the holy place, but to move past that and to become a vessel of honor, to be consumed in the fire, to be purified and to be as pure gold and to be those vessels of honor and to be those witnesses, those people that are his and who that have this close relationship with him, who keep their eyes fixed upon him and on his presence and who guard the testimony and that which he's entrusted to us. And so, ladies and gentlemen, that is just some of the things that we wanted to comment on this week's Torah portion. Hope that you've gleaned things. Hope that it'll provoke you to think on other matters in this Torah portion. Well, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with the Torah portion. Until then, Shalom. Like what you're hearing? Become a BillCloud Premium Partner to watch or listen to hundreds of hours of teachings and resources on demand. Go to BillCloud.com slash subscribe to start watching today.